So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 6th chapter, verses 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word. At the same time, simple, but deeply complicated. And that's what we will find this morning, that he will bring it out to us and explain it to us as we go through it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a deceptively simple passage. It's going to peel back the layers of the onion to each one of us. We don't like to go where this passage is going to take us. But I pray that none will step away from it. They will hold out the mirror of your scripture. That they will look deeply into their own soul and their own life and find there the true motives for what they do. And that if they are wrong motives, that we will correct that. That we will have the motives of the kingdom and not the motives of reciprocity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get started this morning, I want to um, share a scenario with you. I want you to imagine this, if you will. I think it will sort of help set the trajectory of where we're headed. Imagine two men who sit down at the end of the year and take out their checkbooks and write a check to their church. The checks that they write are of the exact same amount. Both men go to the same church. Both men are faithful in their tithing and giving throughout the year. Both men are involved with their church. Both men are faithful attenders in their church. And so both men go to a a, a worship service on one of the last Sundays of the year, the same church. They sit in the same pew. They pass the plate. They put the checks of the exact same amount into the plate, and it goes to the same fund and is spent in the same way. Now, on the outside of that action, it would look like what the two men did were almost identical. But if we delve a little deeper, if we sort of peel back the cover and, and, and we look at their motives and we ask ourselves, okay, why did they do what they did? What motivated them to sit down and write that check? Well, you'll find that they're vastly different because the first man has an income much greater than the second one. And, and, and his purpose, the reason that he wrote that check on that particular day is because he recognized that it was almost the end of the year and that his tax liability was not where he wanted it to be. And so he'd rather give it to the church than give it to the government. So he sat down and wrote a check to make his tax situation a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And don't stop doing that for those of you who do it. But, but that was his motivation. His motivation was because it's going to help him on his taxes. The other man had no such motivation. 
The, the, the other man, first of all, he had a much le- lesser income than the first man, and so therefore tax breaks are not going to make a lot of difference to him. But he wrote the same amount of a check, and the reason that he did it is for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom because he loved the Lord and he wanted to support his church. Now, when you look at the motives underneath the identical actions, all of a sudden, they're vastly different. And you see, that's where Jesus is going to take us in our passage for this morning. He's going to take us into the realm of motives, why we do what we do. And, and, and if we have the motives of reciprocity, and I'm going to explain what that means, if we have the motives where we're expecting something in return for everything that we do, if so there's some kind of underlying meaning, then what benefit is it to us in a kingdom context? Jesus is going to take us to a realm, brothers and sisters, that so many of us don't like to go to. Because we like to do the outer side. We like to do the, the, the activity. We like the relationships. We like the activities. And we like the emotions. But we don't want to talk about the reason we do those things. The motives behind it. And that's where Jesus is going to take us. Now, basically, in these first three verses, 32, 33, and 34, Jesus is going to give us three illustrations of the motives of reciprocity. And once again, I said I'll I'll explain what that means. He's going to give us motives that are really not the wrong motives, but they're sandwiched in between his discussion of kingdom ethics. Because that's what he's been talking about. If you haven't been here, um, before Easter kind of set in, we're talking about Jesus in what is the Sermon on the Mount, talking to us about what kingdom ethics are. Now he's going to talk about motives, and then in verse 35, he's going to go back to kingdom ethics. Now, the, the, the ethics that, or the ethical standards of the kingdom that he's been talking about, we also have stated pretty much impossible for us to keep in our fallen state. Because going back to um, verse 27, he says, starting off with a stunning statement, love your enemies. Not just love the ones who love you, not just love the ones who look like you, who like you, who are in your family or in your sphere, but to love the ones who are pitted against you, who want to bring harm to you, who despise you, to love them. That's the standards of the kingdom. And and then the other three that he gave were, were, were just as extraordinary. He, he, he says, if, if someone, first of all, to, uh, to, to not only love your enemies, but to do good, good actions, and to those who actually hate you while they're in the process of hating you. That moves it into the realm of our actions. And then, just to make sure that we're not doing it in some kind of mechanical or legalistic way, he says to bless those who are actively cursing you. Bless the ones while they're cursing you. Call down God's blessing upon them. And then, to put it all in a spiritual realm, he says pray for those who abuse you, or actively abusing you, whether it's physical, financial, mental, emotional, to, to pray for them, to bear your soul before God so that the Lord who sees your motives knows your heart. And, and, and then he gave us some examples. They didn't correspond exactly. But he said, if someone hits you on your one side of your face, give them the other side. 
or if it, if it was just an insult, to, to don't respond. It, it speaks of not retaliating, of, of not to be aggressive, to return aggression with aggression or evil with evil. But rather, the lesson is that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let the Lord take care of it. You keep on loving your enemies, even if they strike you in that way. The second example he gave was truly extraordinary. It says, if someone cheats you out of your cloak, your outer garment, give them your underwear as well. In other words, let them strip, strip you naked. And, 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 and we talked about the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these. Jesus was, full, was stripped naked on the cross, pretty much so, when, when he was crucified. And yet, he completely trusted his Father. Trust in the Lord to be the one who protects you is what's at the very foundation of that. Then he goes on to say that those who are an imposition on you, those with needs who constantly are asking you, begging you for something, give freely to them, not asking for anything in return. And finally, even those who steal from you and take your stuff, don't retaliate. Don't even try to go retrieve it. Because if you do, you're going to get bogged down in things that have nothing to do with eternity in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has expressed these truly extraordinary kingdom ethics. And like I said, he's going to talk about those again in the 35th verse. But he's going to give us three examples of, 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 of motives that are not the motives that a kingdom dweller should have. And I'm going to call them the motives of reciprocity. So I need to describe or to define some of our terms here. Reciprocity is not a word that we use often, but it's the noun form of a word we use quite often, the adjective, reciprocal. And all that means is that there's a relationship, there's a give and take, if you will. Now, if we have a a reciprocal relationship, it means the relationship that I have, I give something and they give something back. It's a mutual relationship. It's not one way. Famously, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you may remember Gollum, that little crazy creature, saying to the hobbits, we be nice to them if they be nice to us. Well, that's the relationship of reciprocity. That means that if I'm nice to you in this relationship, you're going to return that niceness to me. Well, it's the same thing with actions. You have a reciprocal action when I do something and you do something in return. You scratch my, I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. And then thirdly, these are the three areas we're going to kind of key on this morning. Thirdly, uh, um, our emotions can be reciprocal. Our compassion, the, the love we give. In other words, I'll love you if you love me back. You know, I love those who love me. That's where Jesus is going with this. So that's what reciprocity means. Every time I talk about reciprocity, that is simply the noun. Reciprocate is the verb to to, to, recon- or to be reciprocal is the adjective. And we're going to talk about those in each one of these contexts. So when we talk about reciprocity, in other words, give and take, we're talking about a, a, the motives behind what we do. Now, a relationship, if my motive in having a relationship with you is that I want something in return then those are the motives of reciprocity. If I do something for you 
because I expect you to do something in return, then that's the action of reciprocity. If I love you or I have an emotion because I expect you to return something, loyalty, fidelity, or love back to me, then those are the emotions of reciprocity. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to bring out in these next three verses. That the motives of reciprocity are not the motives of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is not looking for something just to be returned or just to be responded in its own way. Now, in all of this, we're talking about the idea of kingdom ethics. Now, if you're not familiar with what the word ethics means. Ethics refers to the standard under which you live. What is right and wrong, wrong good and bad, good and evil. Uh, and, and, and since we're Christians, we have an ethical standard that is established by God through his word, his revelation. He has revealed his ethical standard. That's the measuring stick. That's the guide. That, those are the standards. Now, when we talk about morality, and we've talked about this before, when we talk about morality, what we're talking about is how well do I measure up to those standards. I'm a moral person if I am pretty close to trying at least fervently to keep those standards. None of us can keep it perfectly. But we at least try, normally we will call that person a moral person because they are trying to live according to the ethical standards under which they have been placed. But now we're going to enter a whole new realm, brothers and sisters. We're going to enter the realm of motives because motives don't look at what you do or think or the actions or the emotions. That motives look at the intentions of your heart. And, and, and you see, this starts to peel things back. And that's why this is difficult for us to go to. Because you can be a very moral person. You can be a pious person. You can want to keep the, 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 the statutes and the commandments of God. You, you may want to live according to that. But if your heart isn't right, you are an immoral person. Let me repeat that. Because you see, this, this is the, the idea of kingdom motives. You can keep outwardly like the Pharisees did, like any legalist did. You can keep as much as you can the, the ethical standards of the kingdom. And the world is going to look at you and say, that's a moral person. But God looks at your heart. And when God looks at your heart, if he's seeing motives, the motives of reciprocity... The motives that aren't the motives of the kingdom, then your morality is gauged not just on what you do, but on the motives, the intention of your heart. And boy, that puts things in a completely different perspective. So, as the principle I want to establish is that yes, ethics are important. But it's the motives that are really going to make the determination whether or not we are truly moral and keeping the ethics of the kingdom. Now, as I said, we're going to look at now at these first three verses. Because in these three verses, Jesus pretty much tells us these, this whole concept of the, uh, of the motives of reciprocity and is going to ask us some very personal and poignant questions. 
Now, before we actually do that, um, let's, let's look at a couple of words that we're going to find in these three verses. Because if you glance at them real quickly, you'll probably notice they're almost identical in form. And so there's several things that if we establish them now, and I realize this is an awful lot of stuff to hit you with before we even start in the scripture, but it will make it go much more quickly once we get into it. There are several things that we need to establish, and then we'll get into these three verses. First of all, when we talk about reciprocal relationships and actions and emotions, there are two people in that equation or two groups. And Jesus defines those two groups as you and those in these three. Over and over again, he speaks of you. Now, every time that he uses the word you, it's in the second person plural. And what that means is he's saying you all, or like we used to say back in Memphis, y'all, right? It's saying a group of people. And so let's, let's revisit where we are. Because in this particular part of Luke, Jesus is standing on the side of a mountain near Capernaum. And he is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he has just appointed his 12 apostles from a vast number of disciples. So more than likely, those 12 men are circled right around him. Back in the 20th verse, we, we notice that he fixed his gaze upon these disciples. So we know that the you he's talking about refers to those disciples. But we also know that around them is a whole crowd of other disciples who didn't get chosen to be part of the 12. And around them is a vast multitude of people. So this you, in the one sense, is fixated on disciples, but on the other sense, it is a very universal you. So what does that mean to you? It means, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus says these three things, he's talking directly to you. If you think you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have followed him, if you have picked up your cross, denied yourself, and then um, um, wanted to follow him as his disciples, then the you that Jesus is talking about refers to you. And it refers to me. And it refers to us as a church. We're the you. And so therefore, we need to look at and consider what our motives are in each one of these situations. The other side of the equation is those. Now, that's a very broad and actually somewhat vague designation because those, the only thing that we can actually pretty much pinpoint is that he's talking about human beings. He's talking about our relationship with other humans. Later on, we'll sort of kick that upstairs and, and, and see how God enters into it. But for right now, Jesus is talking about these relationships actions, and emotions with other human beings. Those are the those that are there. But there's even, a, I think, a, a more... We keep getting into different levels here. There, there's even a deeper element. Because when we talk about relationships and activities and emotions of reciprocity, we're talking about... Me being involved with almost every aspect of it. We're talking about self. Okay? 
Now, we've talked about self earlier when we talked about the, 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 the ethical standards of the kingdom. That as far as self is concerned, well, Christians have two selves, if you want. Not schizophrenic, we're both the same person. But we have the new self and the old self. We have the redeemed self. We have the new soul that Jesus has changed in exchange for a soul that loves him and is able to hold the Holy Spirit. And then we have the old man and the old woman that continually fights against that. And our whole process of sanctification is at that new self. The redeemed self becomes and is the very dominant factor in our lives. Well, when we start talking about reciprocity, the question that underlines this is which self are we talking about? Because if you, if your old self is too heavily involved in your motives, then you are involved with the motives of reciprocity. You're not being selfless. You're being selfish, self-focused, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, self-fulfilling. You're all about self. In some way or another, your relationships, your actions, and your emotions are all in some way benefiting self. Well, that's, that's the motives of reciprocity. The motives of the kingdom are selfless, self-denying. Self-deprecating, a self that goes into the background because I'm not worried about how this benefits myself. I'm going to be worried about how it benefits others. Okay, so that's kind of the, the, the balance that we have here. Now, that's going to be the equation. And then he's going to go on. Jesus is going to say three times, what benefit, what credit is that to you? That's going to be the question. He asks each one of these, what benefit, what credit is that for you? Now, I think that the ESV makes this a little bit unnecessarily ambiguous by using two words here. In the first two, they they use benefit. In the third, they use credit. If you go to the New American Standard and the NIV, they use the same word credit in all three. And certainly underlying this is the same Greek word, exactly the same in all three of them. The word is one that some of you may recognize in the Greek, charis. starts with an X, and you always use that with a C-H, charis. It's a word for grace. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, what grace is that to you? And, and he's not talking about the grace of God. What he is saying, in essence, is you who have received so much grace, what grace are you expending in your relationships in your actions and in your emotions. Not the grace that God has given you, although that's always in the background, but what credit, what value, what benefit, what grace are you extending? When people see the way that you have relationships and actions and, and, and emotions, do they see grace or do they see self? Because one or the other is going to come out, whether you have the Motives of reciprocity or the motives of the kingdom. And then finally, <clears throat> the, um, there's the idea of, uh, of, the, of the center. We'll get to that in just a minute when, when we get through that. Um, there's the, the broader equation that speaks of the benefits 
of reciprocity. The benefits are, are you extending grace in what you do? Okay, with that said, and that kind of is the background, let's dive into these three because then we'll kind of have an idea of what... Oh, by the way, there's one other thing that I want to say. I knew there was something. It was was turning around in my brain. I couldn't bring it up. Um, When we look at the word sinners... We need to identify that before we get into that because you'll notice that Jesus uses the word sinners each time, three times, actually four times total. And what he's saying is that, okay, what benefit is that to you? What grace is that to you? Sinners do this. Now, a sinner, and you all know this, is someone who does not keep the ethical standards under which they have been placed. Since we are Christians, those are the God's ethical standards. So a sinner is someone who, in thought, word, deed, omission, commission, does not keep the very commandments of God, does not live according to his desires. That's the technical term for sinners. But it goes a little bit beyond that here. He's not just talking about those who break God's laws. Because to the Pharisees, those who did not keep their laws were also sinners. So when we talk about sinners here, basically what we're talking about are those who are outside of the covenant community. Matthew actually uses words like Gentile to talk about them. The Gentiles do the same. Of course, they're outside the covenant relationship. He also talks about tax collectors. Even tax collectors do the same. Well, they were Jews, but they were still considered to be outside the community. In a Christian context, a sinner is not just someone who doesn't keep the word of God, but someone who doesn't believe at all in God. So we could say that instead of sinner, it would be okay for us to substitute the word pagan. Okay? Even pagans do the same. But I don't know if you caught it, it's not quite that easy. Because these aren't your everyday bottom of the barrel, scumbag, egregious, ridiculously wicked sinners. These are actually pretty good people. Because these sinners love, first of all, They are engaged in benevolence, secondly, and and, and they lend, and they lend without expecting things in return. So these sinners are pagans, but I'm going to call them noble pagans. In other words, this is the best of the best. He's not comparing this to the the lowest form of humanity and saying, you're not like them. What more are you doing than them? He's ticking the finest, the cream of the crop. And I've, I've often shared an example with you of, of, of the pagan in our life. The noble pagan was our next-door neighbor, John. Many of you have met him, a Muslim. The finest human being you ever want to meet who loved and took terror and, and, and cared for people. And yet he was a pagan, but he was a noble pagan. If you're going to compare yourself and your motives, you better compare them against that level of uh, of, of pagan who is outside. Okay, so with that, now we can take a look at these three. Looking in the first one. Trust me, it's going to go much quicker from here. Um, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, I want you to notice just the form of that. There's three different sentences here. First, it starts with a condition. If you love those who love you, if you only love those who love you, And then a question, what benefit is that to you? What grace is that to you? And finally, a comparison, 
Even sinners love those who love them. It's going to be exactly the same form in each one of these. So he starts out by saying, if you only love those who love you. Well, we already know what the kingdom standards are. Jesus started this out with that stunning statement, love your enemies. That's, those aren't people who love you. That's exactly the opposite of this. There is no reciprocity in the love that Jesus has already stated we're supposed to have for the kingdom. But a, a love of reciprocity is a love that I love you because you love me. And, and, and even the lowest of the pagans are capable of that. I mean, the mafia boss can hold his grandchild in his lap and melt when he sees those loving eyes and, and then go out and kill somebody, you know? I mean, even the worst, a, a prostitute will love her child that is the offspring of her w- wicked profession. A tax gatherer might love his fellow tax gatherers, might love his parents, his parents might love him. So no matter where you are in this scale, you're capable of loving those who love you. But Jesus asks the probing and personal question to each and every one of us, what benefit is that to you? Because you've been loved by the Father. You've received grace when you didn't deserve grace. You have been pulled out of the muck of that sewer and placed on high. So what benefit do you get if you are simply loving those who love you? And the underlying question to each one of these, Matthew actually articulates in the parallel passage, is what more have you done than these? If you compare yourself to the noble pagan who loves those around them and that's all you do, how are you reflecting the glory of God? Because God loves those who hate him. If he didn't, you wouldn't be here. He loves his enemies. And if you're going to reflect that kind of love, then the motive of your heart, which is exposed to God, needs to be the motives of the kingdom and not the motives of reciprocity. He goes on in the second one. Moving from that relationship, the relationship of love, the emotion of love, to actions. If you only do good to those who do good to you, then what benefit is that for you? Even the sinners, even the noble pagans do the same. Again, notice the same form. The first one, the condition, if you only do good, that same word that was not the same word that was used earlier, but the word that means to benefit, to do things that will not necessarily benefit yourself, but to benefit others. If you do good and you only do good to those within your sphere who are reciprocal in that action, then what benefit, what grace, you who have received so much grace, what grace is in that for you? Because even the noble pagans do that. And boy, do they know how to do it. Because you see, the, the reciprocal response doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the same thing that you, that you gave. It could be something entirely different, but it's still reciprocal. I'll give you an example of a, I'm not going to say your name, but you'll know who I'm talking about, TV personality who one almost got famous because she would give away such egregious gifts to her studio audience. Sometimes she would give a car to everyone in the studio audience. 
And everyone just melted when they heard that. Oh, how generous. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how sweet. Oh, what a great example of a noble pagan that is. No, it's not. She's building ratings. She's building her persona. She's selling books and advertising. There's something she gets in return. Okay, she's, she, she, she's giving, but she's also expecting something back. The worst example that I can ever remember, and, and, and I think one of the reasons is because we were so close to it, was the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And our brother, Pastor Jephthah, me too, is over here, was down there in Port-au-Prince on the ground floor distributing money to the people who needed it. No one ever knew his name. No one knew anything about him. But then these celebrities who either made their money by dancing around and exposing their body on a stage or making films where they murdered and killed multiple people and all kinds of violence. And then they go over there with full TV crews, right? I mean, more than one camera so you can get the scene from different places. They prance around in the safe places of Port-au-Prince and they make political uh, statements and moral statements. They come back and they talk on the, on, the, on the guest shows about how great they were and what a wonderful thing they did. No, they didn't. They did it so they would get something in return. That was reciprocal. That's, that was the, 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 the doing of reciprocity. And that's not the way of the kingdom, folks. And God knows the difference. He knows that if you're in your heart, your motives and your intentions aren't pure. If there's a me in there, if there's a self in there, if I'm getting something back by what I give, those are the activities of reciprocity. Well, he goes on to the third one, and he says in the 34th verse, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. That last word there, amount, is not in the Greek text. It simply says, expecting to get back the same. This one's a little bit more complex than the other two, um, only because Jesus is not saying that you, you lend money without expecting to be repaid for what you lend. If you give not expecting anything back, then it's benevolence and not lending By the nature of the word, if you lend, you are expecting to be repaid. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament have strong things to say about that. Psalm 37, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. Paul in Romans says, don't owe anyone anything. In other words, make sure you pay off your debts. So Jesus is not saying that we should lend money and then absolve the debt. Actually, that's really the wrong message to the one who borrows the money. What he's talking about is expecting something above and beyond, the repayment. Let me give you an example. Say that you come to me and you say, Pastor Kirby, I'm just in a bad way. It snuck up on me. Things have happened. Um, They're going to turn off my water and my electricity if I don't come up with the bill like today. And I'm just about $100 short. I'm I'm getting paid in two weeks. I'm going to have the money. There's no problem. Can you lend me a hundred bucks so that I can pay my water and electricity? 
So I say, sure. And so I reach in my pocket, which would never happen because I never have even a quarter in my pocket. But I reach in my pocket and I pull out a hundred bucks. But when I hand it to you, this is what happened. I've got it in my hand and you reach out and you take the other hand side of it to take out of my hand. But I don't let go. Okay. So we're both sitting there holding the same bill and I look you in the eyes and I say, you owe me one. Right. You owe me a favor. Okay. And I'm going to collect someday. But now, but not, not just the payment back of 100 bucks. I, I, I know that's going to happen. I expect that. But now, because I'm such a great guy, you owe me a favor. That's what Jesus is talking about. Is, is if you lend, if you are involved with any kind of financial interchange like that, and you're not doing it for the purpose, and we won't get into the charging of interest and things like that. That's a little bit more complex. But just to expect something above and beyond the repayment of the debt, that's the finances of reciprocity. That's expecting something back for the things that you do. And Jesus says, that is not acceptable for kingdom dwellers. That's not the way we do things. Those aren't our motives. Our motives are pure and from the heart to help those that are in need of help. And so therefore, um, he, he gives us these, these three um, beautiful, I think, illustrations of what not to do, the kind of motives we shouldn't have. And then he's going to go back and tell us what our motive should have been. Remember, I told you that he's kind of wedged this in between two statements about what the kingdom motives are. So he goes on, and he says in the 35th verse, But love your enemies, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Did you see that? Expecting nothing. In return, Jesus has just stomped on the head of the snake of the health and wealth gospel. Because it's all about getting something in return in the health and wealth gospel that has taken this country and now is being exported around the world. That is not kingdom ethics. It is to give without reciprocity, without expecting anything at all. In return, And once again, he talks about these are the standards of the kingdom. And all we have to do is look at Jesus. And we see that that's the way he lived. We talked about that on Palm Sunday. Jesus fulfilled every single one of these. Jesus loved his enemies. If he didn't, I wouldn't be here. He did good to those who hated him. He blessed from the cross those who were cursing him. And he prayed for those who were actively abusing him. Jesus was the perfect example of the ethics of of the kingdom and there's not a bit of me in it at all there's no self there's no I am going to have something in return there's no reciprocity whatsoever in kingdom motives in fact Jesus goes on and says that your rewards aren't from this world your rewards are going to come from from God that's what he says next if we continue in the 35th verse in 35th verse, and he says, your reward will be great. Well, your reward will be great, but it's not going to come from those you're dealing with. There's no reciprocal nature to either your relationships, your activities, or your emotions. Your whole reward comes from God. Now, if we go into Scripture and we look at the way that reward is discussed, it's actually discussed all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a reward for God's people. 
Way back in the beginning when the children of Israel were making their way to the promised land, that was their reward. I was gonna, God was going to restore the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it, it, as time progressed, they, he began to speak of the reward of sending a Messiah. One who would come and would restore righteousness. Isaiah beautifully puts it in his 40th chapter. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Actually, Luke has told us about this reward just a few verses before this in the sixth chapter. Remember, in his Beatitudes, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Your reward is going to be something, a recompense that is given to you by God. Now, here on earth, it is, it is through an, an increased spiritual relationship with Him. It's an intimacy with God. And of course, in the night yet, it is forever after. Jesus warns us about, about forming our relationships, our activities, and our, uh, and our emotions so that we can gain rewards from other people. In fact, in the same Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your Father who is in, from your Father who is in heaven. So in other words, if you get your reward now, <laughs> you're not going to get it later. It depends on where your motives are as to where your reward is and whether or not that is going to be rewarded in, in heaven. But brothers and sisters, we have stumbled into a major problem. It's a big problem within the church today. I'm not going to go into it in any detail right now. I'll talk about it a little bit later on and give you a little bit of a rant. This is one of my soapboxes, but I'm not going to get up on it right now. So if I do, throw something at me. Um, but this is a problem. Because I want to explain what happens quite often in what I'm going to call redirected reciprocity. Okay? We all know what reciprocity means. Okay? That's what we've been talking about. And so sometimes... When, when we recognize what Jesus is talking about here and we recognize that the people that we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and, and the people that we are ex having relationships and activities and actions and emotions with, they're not the ones that we're supposed to get our reward from. There's not supposed to be anything reciprocal, but we just simply take that reciprocity and we redirect it to God. Because I expect something from God, don't I? I expect that reward. I'm doing it for that reward. Well, that's just as reciprocal as if you were doing it with someone else. Imagine that I, I go to Haiti, to one of the worst places, uh, some of the slums in Port-au-Prince, for instance, City Soye. It was a difficult place. Let's say I, say every, I, I sell everything that I own. I take all of my money, and I go, and I set up a medical clinic there. And I move there, and I spend every day ministering to the people of that depressed area, and I expect absolutely nothing in return from them. No relationship, no actions, and no emotions. I am doing it to benefit them, and there's no reciprocity involved. But I'm doing it because I want to build up my treasure in heaven. I'm doing it because I expect something from God. 
I'm doing it. Now, it's okay for me to know that there is treasure to be built in heaven. I'm not saying that's the wrong thing. But what I am saying, if that is your motive, it's the motive of reciprocity. Even if it's not directed at the people here, if it's directed at God, it is still that motive. So what is our motive? What are we supposed to do? If, 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 if Jesus has explained to us, here's the impossible standard, love your enemies, and don't have the motives of reciprocity. Well, he goes on and tells us in the end of verse 35 and verse 36. He says, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You will be sons and daughters of the Most High. Now, make sure you understand what he's saying. He's not saying, if you have the right motives, that that will make you sons and daughters of the Most High. He's saying, you're sons and daughters of the Most High if you've been redeemed. You are adopted. You are His. You reflect your Father. And if you reflect your Father, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He loves His enemies. He does good to those who hate Him. He blesses those who curse Him. And He actively brings good things to those who abuse His saints and abused His Son. In other words, that's the reflection of our Father. Now, Jesus is our, our guide, folks. Jesus is the one that we follow. And, and, and what did Jesus do? He is the perfect reflection of the Father. Famously, Hebrews says what? He's the radiance of God's glory. The exact imprint of his nature. What did Paul say in Colossians? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all the fullness of the deity is pleased to dwell. Jesus perfectly reflected his father. And his father was, it has the kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. And so if we are going to reflect our adopted father, then we will do the same. We will be merciful. We will be filled with the grace of God because we have been extended such grace. We will be merciful in all of our things, not expecting anything in return. We will be merciful because he's merciful. So I've been dancing all around the answer to the question, what is our motive? What motives are we as Christians supposed to have for what we do? And in fact, I shouldn't even say what motives should we have. I should say what motive. Because I told you at the beginning, this is a very complex way to get to a very simple ending. Okay? Because there's a single motive. Way back in the 17th century, the group of men got together, a really extraordinary group of men. They were called the Westminster Divines. And they wrote out a confession of faith. Now, a confession is not revealed scripture. It is just to articulate the doctrines of the faith and to codify them in a certain way. And what they came up with is known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. Many of you know that. We adhere to that confession here at this church. And when they made the confession, they created along with it so people could easily learn it some catechisms, a larger catechism for adults and a shorter catechism for children. 
And famously, and most of you know this, the very first question and answer of that catechism answers our question. Quoting from the larger catechism, what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the first? What is the primary? What is the ultimate, central motivation of human beings? What is the reason that we were placed here? What is the most exalted, the most Christ-like thing that we can do with our lives? The answer, the first and highest end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters, that's the answer to our motive. We have a single motive as Christians. We have a single motive, and that is to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's our purpose in existence is to bring glory to God. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our guide. He, he, he is God incarnate. He's the one who came to show us what God looks like. Right? <laughs> Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He does show us the Father's heart. And what was Jesus' motive throughout his life? To bring glory to the Father. Over and over and over again. These are clearly expressed in John 5, especially in the book of John. I did not receive glory from people. I'm not interested in the glory of those here. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Because that's the only glory that Jesus was interested in. I want to glorify my Father in heaven. He sought that glory throughout his life. John chapter 7. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Talking about his Father. Whether he was contending with the religious leaders or whether he was working miracles, he's always bringing glory to his Father. He said to the religious leaders, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. When he worked miracles, it was for the glory of his Father. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Later on, he told Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? At the end of his public earthly ministry, as he turned his face to the cross and the horrible torture that he would meet there, he turned his eyes to heaven and said, Father, glorify your name. And the Father's voice came from heaven and said, I will glorify it, and I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. On the very night of his betrayal, as Judas left to betray him and to take him to that horrible trial and eventually to the cross, this is what Jesus said. Now is the Son of Man glorified. This betrayal, this trial, this mocking, this beating, this crucifixion will glorify the Son of Man. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. But perhaps no other place is Jesus' focus on the glory of God better expressed than in his high priestly prayer. This is the window that we have into how Jesus spoke to his father. 
And this is what he said. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is our guide, folks. Now, I know that this morning, some of the things that I've said have been technical, been a little bit wordy. You've had to stay with me in order to to see what Jesus is bringing out here. But what I'm about to tell you now, it's time to wake up, in other words, if you've gone to sleep, if you've, if you've pushed that out of your mind. Now it's time to wake up and pay attention because this is the definitive answer. The definitive answer to what is the motive of a kingdom dweller is the glory of God. And Jesus is our ultimate God, our ultimate guide. When He took on the attributes of a human being. When he humiliated himself to enter space and time and took on the attributes of the kingdom, that humiliation glorified his father. When he was incarnated and when he came in the flesh and he lived in the most impoverished situations in a town that nobody even wanted to talk about, that glorified the father. When he lived his life perfectly, fulfilling every single one of God's commandments, not missing one, so that his righteousness would be perfect, so that those who put their trust in him would be deemed and declared righteous, that glorified the Father. Because it was the Father who is going to reap the benefits that he wanted of reconciled and restored relationships with those he made in his image. When he went to the cross... And he accepted the sins of those who trust him upon his shoulders and became sin for us. And he paid the penalty for those sins in the worst torture that any human being could ever go through. He glorified the Father. When they took his dead body down from that cross and they put him in the grave and he didn't see corruption, he glorified the Father. When he rose from that grave to show that God had accepted him as a sacrifice, he glorified the Father. When he presented himself to his disciples and explained to them from going all the way back to Moses and the prophets what the Old Testament said about him, he glorified the fathers whose revelation that was. When he ascended to heaven and he stands at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and is coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords and rules over all creation, he glorified the Father. I'm not done. I'm just warming up now. Just, just about done. One day he's going to come again, folks. John says, we have seen his glory. The glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We will see that glory again. He's not going to come as a lowly carpenter. He's going to come in power and glory. And all the world will bow at his feet. When Jesus wanted to reflect the Father, he glorified him. The motives of his actions were to glorify the Father. You do realize something, don't you? That when you're obedient to the Father, and it depends, it's the whole gambit. When marriages reflect God's idea of marriage, we glorify him. 
When families represent God's idea of a family, we glorify him. When this church follows in the guidelines of Scripture, we glorify the Father. When we teach and preach his word faithfully and we read his word, we don't try to read our own thoughts and ideas into it, we glorify the Father. When we follow kingdom ethics and we seek to have the right motives, selfless motives, self-denying motives, we glorify the Father. Everything that we do that is according to the dictates and the teachings of Christ and the New Testament and the Old Testament glorifies God. The more we're like Him, the more we glorify Him. Brothers and sisters, that tells you right there what your motive should be. Glorifying the Father in all that you do and all that you think. In every relationship that you have, in every action that you do, in the emotions and the compassion that you expend, if you are doing it for the glory of the Father, then you are not doing it out of motives of reciprocity. But you're doing them with the motives of the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, um, that's so simple. I, I know there's an awful lot of wordiness and guiding through the different nuances of the words of what you mean, but it's just really simple. Do all that we do for the glory of God and and our thoughts and our words and our deeds, what what we do and what we don't do, all for your glory. That's our chief and our highest end, to recognize that when you come in, not because we did anything for you, but because of your grace to us, you extended grace to us and made us your sons and daughters. And, and we are children of the Most High. Not through anything we did, but through what you did. And you ask us to reflect your kindness to those who are ungrateful and evil. Because you, that's, that's the mark of the kingdom. So Lord, help us as we in our humanness and our fallenness as we try. And I, I do the same. I, I, I constantly find myself doing things, expecting something in return. Eradicate that from our minds and our thoughts, dear Lord. May we not have the motives of reciprocity, but may we have the motives of Jesus, the motives of the kingdom, the motive of the kingdom, which is to bring glory to God. In whose name we pray.